guardian angels and patron saints, pray for us. Well, today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and so we conclude our Advent series on the basic message of the gospel today, having spoken of each of the three steps in the, the basic story of what it means to hear the good news. Today, we address the fourth, that namely our response, what it is that is asked of us or how it is that we take advantage of the offer that is made to us in Christ. So over the last three weeks, we've touched on each of those three points. So a brief recap maybe is in order. And if you've not had a chance to, to hear these or if you've been attending other churches and want to hear the version that has been presented here, you can get on our website and listen to our, our podcast. I have those posted on our website and on any podcast player, you can find the homily podcast as well. But the basic recap, the first Sunday of Advent, we spoke about being created. The second Sunday, being captured. The third Sunday, being rescued. And today, the response. So I want each of you to remember those four things. Created, captured, rescued, and the response. Being created means we are the work of an all-good God, and therefore, we are all good. There is no competing evil God. There is one God, and he is supreme over all. He's made us and placed us here on this, on this earth at this time and in this place to be loved and to love. That is our mission. Now, because of the envy of the devil, he rebelled and has been, has been at war with the human race ever since in his efforts to enslave and degrade us. This is accomplished through lies, manipulation, deception. It's not an outright attack, but a subtle and, and insidious one. And that explains why it is that we see so much disorder and injustice and sin in the world. Because you and I have been captured. We were born on a battlefield. Though we were created good, we have been captured by an enemy. And this enemy seeks to enslave and degrade us. And ever since that situation in the human race obtained with the disobedience that belonged to our first parents, we have been subsequently born into captivity ever since. The children of slaves are themselves slaves, however unjust that may be. And it is through Christ Jesus his birth, death, and resurrection, that a new kingdom, a new covenant has been founded, that we might leave the dominion of sin and death and live in the harmony and the goodness and the paradise that we were created to enjoy in the presence of God. And he did so first through his incarnation, dropping in like a paratrooper behind enemy lines to conduct a campaign of sabotage. Humble, hidden, but preparing for an ultimate and final conflict with evil, drawing it out into the open so as to be able to slay it definitively once for all. He put death to death by his death because he died as one of us. 
And in his rising from the dead, he unmasked the power of Satan, our enemy, to deceive, manipulate, and enslave. His resurrection is the good news that also, in the power of the Holy Spirit, gives his people, those who profess faith in him, authority and power over evil and gives them membership within his body. And today we talk now about how it is that we receive that. That's what's been accomplished. But what does that do to me? How does that change my life? I'd like to use today a couple of the points of scripture to explain this. But before I do so, I just want to mention the source of much of the the teaching that I'm using here. This book, Rescued, by Father John Ricardo, is a beautiful summary of the gospel message. I highly recommend if you want to review this material, go deeper, really grasp it and understand it for yourselves, get a copy of this book. Father John Ricardo, Rescued, the Unexpected and Extraordinary News of the Gospel. I think in our gospel, in our scriptures today, particularly the gospel, we see a good example of what it is that it means to to receive this good news and actually actually benefit from it. St. Joseph, right at the very end of our gospel reading, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took his wife into his home. Now that's describing an actual historical event, but we can interpret it spiritually. Joseph receives a message, an announcement, He receives that message, and he believes it, and he acts on it. And spiritually speaking, we can interpret Mary as an image of the church here. That Mary, as the bride of of God, she who has been espoused to him and gives birth, is the church. And she carries within her body the incarnate word of the Savior. And when Joseph welcomes her into his home, he's literally bringing Jesus into his home carried within Mary's womb, hidden, but alive, active, and powerful, God with us. And so, too, as we welcome these truths into our hearts, the home of our hearts, right, by receiving what the church is proclaiming to us, we receive Jesus. Though he may be hidden, he is alive, and he is active in us. So I'd like to ask St. Joseph's intercession today that my, my weak and failing words would nonetheless be the instrument of the Holy Spirit to say the thing that you need to hear. To be the, the word of consolation or of invitation or of challenge that will help you to make this your own. So I ask you, St. Joseph, to intercede for me as a, the Lord's instrument and for all here present, those listening. Help us be, to be attentive to the movements of the Holy Spirit. That as you lived justly in those years leading up to the dream in which you were informed about the coming of the Messiah, so too the goodness and righteous life of all of us would prepare us to receive him into our hearts. And that as you spent your final years in the company of Jesus and Mary in your home at Nazareth, that each of us would live closely with him in friendship for the sanctification of our souls and for the conversion of sinners. So today I'd like to begin with these words of St. Paul in the second reading. We have received the grace of apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. 
St. Paul is saying, I proclaim the gospel. I have been sent by Jesus, the victor over death, to proclaim the good news of salvation and to bring about the obedience of faith. This, brothers and sisters, is our response. The obedience of faith. The word obedience comes from a Latin root, the same root as the word audio or auditory. It means to listen attentively. The obedience of faith is not believing things that are obviously false or wrong. The obedience of faith is not blind. The obedience of faith does not contradict the things that we understand using our reason. The obedience of faith means the gift that God gives each individual in order to receive those things that he has revealed for our salvation, our deliverance from the dominion and enslavement into which we were born, and to receive them as true. Moreover, we receive these things and believe them with even greater certainty, not less certainty, than the things that we understand using our own intelligence. You and I believe that the world is round, We have good reason for doing so, don't we? Are you more or less certain, in virtue of the gift of faith, that Jesus has died to save you from death and that he will raise you from the dead? Most of us would probably, our gut instinct would say, well, I'm less certain about that because that's something of faith. I'm more certain that the world is round than I am that I will be raised from the dead or that those who have died marked with the sign of faith, will rise in Christ. But it's actually the opposite. Because God, who is all-knowing, and who can neither deceive nor be deceived, has revealed this truth to us. In faith, we receive it with greater certainty than we do those truths that we come to understand by our own intelligence. The obedience of faith, then, requires in us an assent to say, I I accept, I affirm what is proclaimed, that I was born on a battlefield, though good, and that Christ has rescued me from that kingdom, that kingdom of, of my enemy, and brought me into the kingdom of his own reign. By affirming that, we receive the gift of faith, and we intensify the gift of faith. But we don't stop there, just with the affirmation. That would be to simply receive it as information. But the news that comes to us from God is to be received as something we perform that doesn't just inform, but that we perform. And we begin by worshiping. Worship is the first response that we make in the obedience of faith. Having affirmed the truth, we now worship. What happens here in the liturgy of the the Mass is the adoration and glory that we give to God for the victory that he's accomplished in Jesus as the great hero of the human race. Think of it in terms of the glory and adoration and honor that we give to great athletes or great celebrities. There's nothing wrong with honoring people who are good at what they do, athletes, musicians. 
great public figures who work for justice or who accomplish great things in the world. It's proper to give them honor and justice. But the problem is that when we give them a greater honor than, is, than what is due to God, God is to be worshipped and glorified above all as the one true hero of the human race because his victory, greater than any athletic contest or any great performance, is something that speaks to every human being. It addresses the predicament of every human being, namely the enslavement by our enemy and our degradation by being drawn into lies, deception, and falsehood. The honor and glory that we give to God dethrones every other idol that we place at the center of our lives. Every other relationship, every other desire for power or pleasure or wealth or human respect, all of those things, while good in and of themselves, become idols when they are the center of our lives. And only God belongs there. Only Jesus, who has delivered us from the kingdom of death, belongs at the center of our lives. And so we affirm week in and week out that he is our Savior and that he is our hero and our Lord. So as to dethrone every other false idol that attempts to take his place. And from that act of worship, we are drawn into the next step of our response. Surrender. Surrender. I am no longer in control of my life. I'm no longer the one in charge of my life. My life isn't about me. I surrender it. I hand it over. And I hand it over completely. Every aspect of my life. Because I have been rescued. I respond in the same way as if I had been a victim of trafficking, enslaved, in chains, or something far darker I respond to the one who delivered me from that enslavement by saying, however I can serve, however I can, whatever I can do, I want to repay you. And that's all I want. The gift is total. Our surrender is complete. Anything less falls short of the truth. And so this surrender begins to take root in our lives, and we live it out day in and day out. It's not something that happens once, although it has to happen at least once, but it's renewed day in and day out so that if everyone, ever, anyone were ever to ask us, when, when is it that you gave your life to Christ? Our answer should be, this morning. When is it that you surrendered completely to him and you affirmed him as your, as your Savior and your Lord to whom you owe your deliverance? The answer should be half an hour ago. And this then becomes yet another part of our response because our response is not complete until we draw others into that same liberation and freedom that we have received. The gospel is meant to be received and then it is meant to be, to be shared. The reason for this, I'll use an illustration that I came across many years ago that I've probably shared with many of you before. But it's actually written into the geography of the Holy Land itself. 
If you look on a map, you'll see the Jordan River flows from north to south, and it flows along the east end of the Mediterranean Sea. It flows into the Sea of Galilee in the north part of Israel. And then it flows out. The outflow of that river continues down south until it arrives at the Dead Sea. They're connected by one river. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a beautiful and lush place. Its waters are filled with fish, hence the fishermen who are fishing on the Sea of Galilee. There's green, lush trees and greenery all along its shores, beautiful shells and all sorts of delightful things about the Sea of Galilee. Jesus spent the majority of his time in public ministry in that area. It's no surprise. It's one of the most beautiful parts of the Holy Land. But you go to the Dead Sea, and the sea here is very different. I would be hard-pressed to find a more desolate and lifeless place on the surface of the planet than the Dead Sea. It is a body of water, but nothing can live in it. And here's why. The water that flows into the Sea of Galilee flows out. It's continually refreshed by in, in, uh, inflowing water. But then that water moves on into another, to another body of water. The Dead Sea, however, is in a place where all of the water that flows in evaporates. It doesn't actually flow into the Mediterranean Sea. It evaporates into the air. There's no outflow. Nothing comes out of the Dead Sea. And so all of the minerals and particulate matter and eroded soil that comes in, along with all the, the, the water that, that flows naturally, that water comes in and as it evaporates, it leaves behind and deposits all of those minerals, which concentrates to such a level that nothing can live in it anymore. And this is an important image for our souls. That as we continually take in and take in and take in, if we don't then share, what happens is this actually creates a kind of spiritual death in us. If we only consume and receive the things of grace and never share them and hand them on to others. And so our response requires going on mission, sharing the gospel with others. And so that means knowing it well enough to share it. As the saying goes, you only know as well as you can teach. So I want our people to have this clear in their minds, the four steps of the gospel, and have your own way of communicating and sharing this story in its most basic form. It doesn't have to take, it doesn't have to take 20 minutes or 80 minutes as it's taken me. <laughs> and so in sharing the gospel, we can look back to the first Christians and identify the ways that they carried out their responsibility to share. Because they absolutely did. From the first moment of the church's existence, they were going out to share the gospel and the good news of Jesus' new kingdom that's rescued us from the power of sin and death to enslave us. This was new, by the way. Nobody did this in the ancient world. No Romans went spreading the devotion to Apollo or Mars or Jupiter to other cultures or countries. Nobody went from Greece or from Norway to talk about Zeus or Odin to people in foreign lands. No, only Christians who accepted that there was one God over all 
who created everything that is and who died to save it, went out to save every people of every nation and of every culture and of language group. Christians were the first missionaries. No one did that. And how did they do it? What resources did they have? Think about their situation. Think about that first group of Christians in Jerusalem on Pentecost Sunday, having been baptized, just a few thousand of them. What resources did they have to carry out this great world-transforming mission? How many bishops and priests did they have? Well, there were 11 of them. How many, how many deacons did they have? None, actually. Not a single deacon. How many trained theologians and great writers did they have? How many seminarians? Zero. How many church buildings did they have? Zero. How many Christians were there? Just a few hundred. How many countries had Christians in them? One. One country. How many church, excuse me, how many gospels had been written? How many books of the New Testament did they have to rely on and refer to? None. How many schools? How many universities? Not a single one. How much money? Whatever they themselves owned. How many influential contacts in high places? None. How many of them had experience in carrying out this mission to other countries and other cultures and foreign languages? Well, they certainly didn't have any training. Maybe they picked it up in their, in their business, but most of them had never left Jerusalem or Galilee. What did they have? They had the power of the Holy Spirit to convey the message that each person is beloved of God and has been saved from the power of death. If only they will obey in faith. And so they carried this standard of the crucified body of the Lord and they held it up to show people this is what you are worth in God's sight. This is what you are worth. This is what you are worth. This is what you mean to God. His death, the death of his beloved son. And that all he asks of you is to get up and leave the prison in which you've been living all your life. The prison of your own sinfulness, the prison of your own captivity to your own selfish will. And discover in faith the joy of what it means to surrender. I believe this gospel message is something that we can dig into every single day. I personally have been blessed by the time that I've had to devote to preparing and thinking about these things to communicate them. To reconnect with our roots is always powerful and transformative, and I encourage you to do the same. But today, I just want to conclude with the prayer that Father Ricardo included here in his book. A prayer that we can all pray along with in our parts here now as I read it for you. But that it would set free in you whatever 
whatever ways in which you've given in to the lies of your enemy, that the Holy Spirit would strike those chains off your heart and that you could come to believe the truth about who you are in God and why he's placed you here, that your mission to be loved by him and your mission to love with him could begin again today and every day. So please join me in your hearts as I pray this, this prayer. God, I believe that out of your infinite love, you created me. I repent of all of the times I have believed the enemy's lies that you are not a good father and that you don't love me. Please forgive me for all of my sins. Thank you for sending Jesus to rescue me from sin, death, hell, and Satan. I choose this day to place your son, Jesus, at the center of my life. And so today, here and now, I surrender to you, Jesus, and desire your lordship over every area of my life. I ask you now to flood my soul with your gift of the Holy Spirit. Help me to know my true identity as your beloved daughter, as your beloved son. Help me to know that I matter and that I am worth dying for. Recreate me to be the person you destined me to be. And please, use me as an instrument in your merciful hands to rescue others and to help recreate this world that you so love. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat>